And we wind up with North Korea not only getting nuclear weapons, but by today, they're one of only three countries in, in the world that can threaten the United States with nuclear weapons. Since negotiations on North Korea's nuclear weapons program broke down in 2019, North Korea has largely ignored attempts by the United States and South Korea to resume dialogue. And we've been completely unsuccessful. As one of the few states in the world not party to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, North Korea has continued to develop and test nuclear weapons, going from zero in 2001 to perhaps 50 weapons two decades later. The United States and South Korea stand shoulder to shoulder, both in the face of Pyongyang's provocations and in our refusal to accept a nuclear North Korea. In September 2022, Kim Jong-un declared that North Korea will never denuclearize and allow for preemptive nuclear strikes if imminent attacks are detected. How did the U.S. and North Korea reach this point after years of promising negotiations? What can we learn from past negotiations, and how might North Korea's current technical capabilities affect future ones? This is Global Insights by Network 2020. Today, we're joined by Dr. Siegfried S. Hecker, former director of the Los Alamos National Laboratory, professor emeritus of Stanford University, and author of Hinge Points, an inside look at North Korea's nuclear program. Moderating the discussion is Courtney Doggart, president of Network 2020. I wanted to start with the book, and I'd be curious if you wouldn't mind talking about what prompted you to write Hinge Points, uh, which is an inside look at North Korea's nuclear program, and what what you thought you could bring that that was different than what has been explored before. Well, uh, Courtney, um, I want to write the book because... Uh, I had the opportunity to go to Korea, to North Korea, seven times uh, and actually visit their nuclear uh, facilities, talk to their nuclear scientists, engineers, and, and to their diplomats, and make a number of other visits and stops. Uh, and, and then I also worked pretty closely uh, with the various uh, U.S. governments, you know, from one administration after another, starting with North Korea in, in 2004. And so what struck me as I went through all this time and, and then essentially got to the point uh, of, uh, of the Trump administration and, and the two uh, big summits that, that Trump had with Kim Jong-un, uh, the young uh, North Korean leader, and and what struck me is is essentially I must say for heaven's sakes, you know we work with these guys for a couple of decades specifically uh, in diplomacy and also in threatening them back and forth, uh, and we've been completely unsuccessful. You know the idea from the American side starting with the Clinton administration, actually with the George H. W. Bush administration back around 1990 timeframe, is we don't want the North Koreans to develop nuclear weapons. 
And and uh, I was already uh, at Los Alamos at that time for quite some time. Actually, I was director uh, of the Los Alamos National Laboratory uh, at that time. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. We don't want these guys to have nuclear weapons. And so starting sort of in the 1990 timeframe, the North Koreans started to put together the pieces where it looked like they're going to pursue nuclear weapons. And then lo and behold, they invite my colleague, John Lewis from Stanford University to come and visit in what we call track two visit, that is non-governmental, non-official. And John invites me to go along. So I'm the nuclear guy. I go along, I go to North Korea, and they show me all this incredible stuff, you know, their nuclear facilities. In the end, I actually wound up holding their plutonium in my hand in a glass jar, a marmalade jar, I think it was. And so I went to it. I went there seven times in a row, and then I continued to follow. I continued to try to advise our government as much as possible. And then here I was with the Trump administration, uh, actually, lo and behold, starting off really badly in 2017, then turning around, talking to Kim Jong-un, and it looks like we've got a chance. And he walks away from Hanoi, uh, and it's just a total disaster. And so at that point, I decided, look, I want to write up my experience, and particularly what I thought would be valuable. You know, I'm a technical guy. Uh, and again, all, all together, I came to Los Alamos actually 58 years ago as a summer student. So the technical stuff runs through my blood. But then, you know, I've been exposed to diplomacy because I've been in all those uh, countries that, that you mentioned. And I said, you know, I, I want to write the book. I want to write this down. I, I want to try to demonstrate to our government and the American public that when you put the technical and the diplomacy aspects together, there were other solutions than the ones that we wound up going to. And those were those hinge points that I call hinge points, where North Koreans developed their nuclear program, went the, you know in some direction that we call provocations, and then the uh, U.S. had to make decisions. And it didn't matter whether it was George W. Bush, whether it was uh, President Obama, whether it was President Trump. They made the wrong decisions just about every time. And we wind up with North Korea not only getting nuclear weapons, but by today, you know, almost 20 years after I first went there in January of 2004, they're, they're one of only three countries in, in the world that can threaten the United States with nuclear weapons. The other two, of course, being Russia and China. So I said, I want to write this down. And that's what I did in my book uh, that I, I call hinge points. And quite frankly, you really, you do have to read the book uh, because I described the visits and, and you, my frustration, I'm sure, just droops on, on every page. So that's why. <laughs> Good. Well, we, we, we like to hear very clear frustration. Um, so just to give a preview for, for some of the people, what are some of the key hinge points that, that you saw over time um, over subsequent visits to North Korea and with the different administrations. Yeah, so so let me let me give you say one each for those three administrations that I mentioned. So it turns out uh, Clinton actually didn't get a hinge point because uh, President Clinton in 1994 actually signed an agreement uh, with the North Koreans. It was called the Agreed Framework. It wasn't the formal treaty or so forth. It was a framework. And and he signed that with the North Koreans, and it was clear by that time the North Koreans had put in place those things 
that it takes to make a bomb. And, you know, to make a bomb, you need three things. First of all, you need the bomb fuel, the nuclear material. That's typically plutonium in, in today's world. By the way, that was the bomb fuel used in Nagasaki. Uh, or you can also go the uranium route, what's called highly enriched uranium. Those are the two routes. And what was what North Korea was clearly demonstrating uh, is they had built the capability to make plutonium. And so the Clinton administration then actually, the initiative came from the North Koreans, and we'll come back to that. In 1990, Kim Il-sung, uh, you know, whom they call the great leader, made the decision he's going to give up on China and Russia, and he's going to try to normalize relations with the United States. So uh, he started that agreement. He died before the agreement actually went into effect. Uh, he died in July of, uh, of 1994. Uh, nevertheless, the Clinton administration had this agreement where North Koreans said, okay, we're going to shut down our nuclear plutonium production reactor. We're going to stop that program. Uh, and the Clinton administration between 2000 and, uh, I'm sorry, 1994 and 2000 followed that with the North Korea. It wasn't an easy uh, walk because nothing with the North Koreans is easy. Uh, and, and nevertheless, they were moving along. Then in comes the Bush administration. And, and quite frankly, the sort of hardliners, not just President Bush himself, but, but people uh, like Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld and John Bolton and others. Uh, and they thought this whole business uh, of doing any agreement with the North Koreans is a terrible, terrible idea. And they were determined to kill this agreement. And so they killed the agreement the excuse that they had was that they saw that the North Koreans were sort of cheating on the side by freezing the plutonium program while trying to start a uranium program. But it turns out Clinton administration knew that it was in its infancy. It wasn't a terribly big deal at the time. The Bush administration killed that agreed framework and the North Koreans said, okay, we're out of here. We're going to start these reactors. We're going to extract the plutonium, and we're going to build the bomb. And they did. That that was a hinge point. And the poor decision was to break the agreement without really having a plan B in place. And so that's so the Bush administration, you know, vowed that North Korea will never get a nuclear weapon. Well, they got it on George W. Bush's watch and on John Bolton's watch as such. So that was their um, their hinge point. I'll say the other two, I'll just give you very quickly. But just, so President Obama comes in to the office, you know, in January of 2009. And as you know, he famously said, as he reached out to various rogue regimes around the world to say, I'm going to extend my reach out my hand if you unclench your fist. Well, the North Koreans decided, for many reasons that that I described in the book, they're going to run. They're going to go ahead and launch a rocket, and they did that almost on the same day. That, in fact, just a little before uh, President Obama gave his big speech in Prague on April fifth of two thousand and nine, and then that was a hinge point. President Obama walked away from the North Koreans, walked away from sort of a resumption of a of a deal. And the North Koreans just ramped up their program. And then we'll give Trump the credit. So Trump, to his credit, gets together with Kim Jong-un in Singapore and has the right type of agreement, actually. You know, no details. It just lays out 
to say, hey, look, we're going to normalize relations with the United States. That's what the North Koreans want. For the Americans, you're going to stop this nuclear weapons program and sort of we're going to take steps along the, the way of stopping the program. That was Singapore. Then they start to work on the details of that. And both sides just made enormous mistakes. Uh, and that is the North Koreans made the mistake. By that time, Kim Jong-un was doing personal diplomacy with Trump. And so nobody else counted. So he didn't let his people actually do the homework that it takes to put a real agreement in place. Uh, and the U.S. For, for its side is John Bolton was back in the government by that time. And he was determined there was going to be no, no deal uh, with the North Koreans. And he, he essentially, he tutored Trump uh, on walking away. And Trump walked away. And that was 2019. And so those were three crucial hinge, point, hinge points. It isn't clear that at any of those places, the North Koreans would have actually given up their nuclear weapons. But we didn't stay with it long enough to find out. Sorry for the long answer, but that's sort of a good part of the story of the book. It requires a long answer. It's you know, several administrations. Um, what what strikes me, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that it sounds, and I say this as someone who comes from the, the Foreign Service, is that it's not necessarily a failure of traditional diplomacy because there weren't traditional diplomatic relations, but more of an, an administration making a decision that was either for political consumption or, I, I mean, do, do you think that this could have gone differently if there had been more traditional diplomacy rolled in? And how would you contrast that with, say, something like the JCPOA negotiations with Iran? No, that, that, that's a good question. And I would say, I guess there, there's almost no way to do anything traditionally with North Korea. <laughs> you, you know, they I mean, they have been this sort of hermit kingdom. Although, you know, when I went over there, what was really interesting, I mean, th those, not only the diplomats, but even so many of the North Koreans uh, uh, that I met, they know a lot more about the world. They know a lot more about the United States than than we do. But nevertheless, you know, there's still this country by nine, you know, in, uh, after the Korean War, of course, they were devastated. They rebuilt very quickly, a lot of it because of the help from the Russians and some with the Chinese. They rebuilt quickly. And in the 60s and 70s, they were progressing faster than South Korea was. But by the 80s, they were falling far behind. And so uh, through the 50s, 60s and 70s, they were kind of impossible. They were this difficult state. By the 80s, they were falling behind. And so they then felt that they were sort of this small, weak state and they have to look tough. So traditional diplomacy was, was really, really difficult. What, what I would say failed, and, and, and you, I'm sure uh, you recognize this from your time in the State Department, I'm sure others will also, uh, is, is what, what we had in, in this diplomacy, sort of a lack of strategic empathy. You know, we, we never looked at our agreements. We never looked at what did the North Koreans really want. We just sort of put our stamp on what we think the North Koreans want and what they're after uh, without really understanding the country well enough, understanding the people. And again, uh, uh, what I mean is empathy, not sympathy. You know, we don't have to sympathize with these guys, but we should understand 
And, and what I found in the track two world, you know, the unofficial diplomats, or after the diplomats retire, then they go back to the track two. We had so many people who really did understand North Korea, but not in the government necessarily. And then the government just time after time made decisions uh, that were just, they were non-starters with the North Korea. So that's what I think happened. Another another question about North Korea, and thank you. I, I like that that uh, phrasing of strategic empathy. Um, but whenever we hear about Korea, say firing missiles or testing things, is there a pattern to their actions? And and I and I ask this because you have, I think, such a deep understanding of their behavior over time. Is, is there something that jumps out to you when you hear? something new in the news that has to do with North Korea testing something? Well, I, I think so. Uh, and um, see, the, the pattern in sort of in, in um, what's important, you have to look at it from a big picture standpoint and, and not to react on one missile launch or one nuclear test. You have to look at the overall pattern. And so the way that I would describe the way that I understand their pattern, you know, as, as well as I can, is that in 1990, Kim Il-sung made this decision uh, that perhaps he's better off with the United States and wants to normalize relations with the United States. And so then what I develop in, in the book is that I say, I believe that North Koreans follow the pattern of what I call dual track strategy. So one important track was do diplomacy with the United States and see if you can't get to normalizing relations. But you can never trust these guys, you know, the North Koreans would say, and they're the big guys and they're the South down below and the combination of the South, the, the UN forces in, in, in South Korea and the US in South Korea, are just totally overwhelming. And, and so we can't appear weak, look weak, and so the pattern was to do this dual track strategy. So go ahead and engage and try to convince the Americans, look, we really do want to make a deal. And so that pattern early on was actually the first nuclear test. And then when they went back to the longer range nuclear testing, was look, that pattern was to get the United States to get serious, to show them that they actually have capabilities that could threaten the United States. And so that was the pattern. So, the, so they would do a rocket launch. They would do a nuclear test. They would, and they'd show me this stuff, you know, early on. And, and the reason they had me there and they showed me this is they essentially wanted me to go back and say, you know, tell your government we really do have the bomb and we have the methods, you know, by which we can deliver the bomb. So that was that was the pattern. And then they, they would do another nuclear test. They do another rocket test depending on where they thought they were in the diplomatic process uh, of get, moving towards normalization with the United States. So they would turn it on, off. And, and the way that I describe it in the book is to say they, they never abandoned either of those tracks. They followed the dual track all the way through. But which one had the upper hand sort of depended on both the international situation, mostly the United States, not anywhere near so much South Korea, although certainly that tempered it uh, sometimes or, or accelerated it other times. So it was mostly uh, the United States that, that they would pay attention to as to whether they would try a bit more in diplomacy 
or they shoot off another missile. And in the last few years, I mean, they 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 had uh, you know apparently made the decision. I had always thought it was enough for the North Koreans to be able to reach South Korea, uh, even with just those fifteen thousand you know rocket tubes they have with conventional weapons up above the DMC. I mean, that would that would just obliterate much of Seoul. That's a deterrent. We don't want them to go there. Then once they develop the nukes, and they do have the nukes to reach South Korea, I mean, that's a deterrent. You know, we have 200-some thousand Americans living in South Korea. You know, we've got 28,000 uh, military forces in, in, in South Korea. But they apparently, you know, in their own minds, decided they had to be able to threaten the mainland United States before the Americans would really get serious uh, about diplomacy. And so that's then the pattern that sort of led to them going, first of all, to intermediate range uh, rockets, then to ICBM rockets, and then uh, just recently to solid fuel rockets. That's a... That's an interesting. Okay, let, let me just, Courtney, no. I'll just add yeah. one more yeah. thing, but I'm not going to get to that till later. Uh, that pattern has now changed in the, in the past year to a year and a half. That is seeking accommodation or normalization with the United. It's changed. I have a follow up question on that point. Um, you mentioned that that for whatever reason the North Koreans felt that they needed to be able to threaten mainland U.S. in order to be taken seriously diplomatically. Were were they right? Oh, you know, how do we know? <laughs> uh, the, the, in the U.S., I mean, the one thing you have in the U.S. is this broad political spectrum. And there indeed, there are a whole bunch of people that'll say, yeah, we're not going to trade, you know, San Francisco for Seoul. Uh, and so you're right, unless they can threaten San Francisco, Washington, or, or, or New York City, uh, yeah, we're, we're not going to come and, and help South Korea out, for example. Uh, I do not believe that. Uh, I, I do not believe that. They they deterred us, uh, but they really believed that they had to have the full force capabilities and they continued to work in that direction. But let me just give you the bottom line as we're, we are right now in terms of their nuclear developments. Mm -hmm. uh, so they don't have all that much plutonium. They actually have made quite a bit of high highly enriched uranium, maybe enough of those two for 50 or 60 nuclear weapons. Well, it turns out that's a lot. Uh, and and their nuclear weapons in their missiles, you, you know, the nuclear bombs, warheads mounted in the missiles, in my opinion, uh, can today reach all of South Korea and most of Japan. And so that is an incredible threat. Uh, they have developed the rockets that can reach the United States. But they still, in my opinion, have not yet demonstrated that they can marry the warheads, make it small enough, put it on the rocket, and have the rocket actually go the normal trajectory to reach the United States. So far, all of their long-range rockets have been high but close rather than low and far. Uh, but you know what we've learned with the North Koreans, you give them enough time, eventually they're going to get there. That. That's a great jumping off point for for next question. Um, I'd love for you to just explain a little bit about your assessment of their technical capabilities. And, you know, I think a lot may have been made of other countries' assistance, perhaps, when they're developing weapons. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how much they've done, quote unquote, in-house and how much they've relied on other countries. And 
I did hear you reference in one of your talks uh, the horrendous European black market and was wondering if you could expand on that as well. Yeah, so so let me, um, again, you're asking big questions. <laughs> uh, and particularly when they get a university professor, you know, they give long answers. Uh, let's see, the, um, the reasonably short answer uh, is that nobody gave the North Koreans nuclear weapons. Okay, that's what a lot of people think. So either the Russians or the Chinese must have given them nuclear weapons or essentially given them all the capabilities to build nuclear weapons. The answer to that is that is not true. And so a good part of the North Korean program is really an indigenous program. You know, they started already thinking about nuclear weapons right after the Korean War. And initially, they got help for civilian nuclear programs and actually some of the initial facilities in Yongbyon, the place that I visited, are built by the Russians. And by the way, if you think that's extraordinary, well, we built the first reactor for Tehran, you know, during the Shah's day. This was all part of uh, President Eisenhower Adams for Peace, which will turn 70 uh, this December 8th. Uh, so um, they had some general help in nuclear things related to civilian nuclear energy. But then they really developed their own nuclear weapons program. And what made it possible for, for them uh, was the fact that there was this enormous black market for, so for some of the key technologies uh, that you needed in order to make this uranium called centrifuges, uranium enrichment, or make the plutonium through reactors. Uh, and for example, A.Q. Khan from, Kazakhstan, uh, from, from Pakistan uh, he worked in the Netherlands on uranium enrichment. And after he brought it to Pakistan, then he went and sold it all over. And his network were a bunch of greedy European businessmen who would sell these centrifuges, sell the key technologies. And the North Koreans were smart buyers. And in the missile field, they actually had more help than in the nuclear field uh, from, the, uh, from the Russians, Soviets, then the Russians, and then from uh, from the Chinese early on. But then later on, after they developed the initial missile capability, they started selling it around. You know, they helped Pakistan. They helped Iran with their nuclear, uh, with their missile program as such. And, and so the answer is, think indigenous. These guys are just, they're not the greatest scientists in the world, but they're damn good engineers. Uh, and then, you, you know, the blueprints for these things were around. There were European businessmen who were willing to sell almost anything. And then just this sort of dogged determination to just stay with it because they never know what's going to happen to their country. Thank you. When you're looking at the universe of nuclear armed countries, what alarms you the most? <laughs> uh, so, Courtney, that's changed dramatically during my time. I mentioned 1965, you know, Los Alamos, essentially as a kid. Uh, it was also just for humanitarian things. It's interesting. It was my honeymoon also, uh, and and so uh, so I've been in this business for a long, long time. And so you, you know, the first twenty years or so at, at Los Alamos, I mean, it was Soviet Union. I mean, it was Soviet Union, Soviet Union, Soviet Union, uh, and then the Soviet Union fell apart, and then it was Russia. And not that we we're going to be hit by their missiles, but their plutonium, their highly enriched uranium. You know, their missiles would be sold, be stolen, go to go go to terrorist organizations or other countries. That was the threat. Uh, and so 
that died, and but the Soviet and then the Russian missile that died down, you know, significantly. So I really breathed a sigh of relief in the 1990s. Then in the 2000s, you know, I could see Russia sort of coming back, and by 2014. When they annexed Crimea, I said, boy, this is not good. And then in February 24th of 2022, when they invaded Ukraine. So the answer to your question today, uh, it's it's Putin and it's Russia. Uh, so my concern is, though, even, you know, remarkably, we have not had nuclear weapon used in warfare since Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. That's a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, but today we worry about Putin, and he sort of destroyed all of the rest of what I call the global nuclear order, making sure that other countries don't build nuclear weapons, making sure that terrorists don't get uh, you know, the nuclear materials, don't attack nuclear power plants the way he has, you know, taking over the, the Ukrainian ones. So it, it's really it's really Russia. Uh, China was really not much of a problem, you know, in the nuclear world for many, many years. But they've now decided they're going to go ahead and build up their arsenal. Uh, they still don't represent, you know, a major, major nuclear threat, the United States, but they're going to be able to defend themselves. Then if you don't focus on the United States alone, so I, I would say Russia is, is the biggest concern. North Korea is the next concern. And if you're not focused on the United States alone, it's India, Pakistan. You know, that's I've been both India and Pakistan and and that's just an absolute nightmare to me. And then, of course, traipsing along in the back, but they don't have nuclear weapons yet, is Iran. You know, because that's such a volatile region of the world. And certainly, you don't need nuclear weapons, uh, you know, in Iran or in the Gulf or in any place else. So those are the concerns. A, a lot of them. Um, sticking on the concern of Russia. What I find interesting about this particular point in time is that the diplomatic relations with Russia are so sour, uh, including the I, I think even some of the a lot of the track two initiatives and, and Russia is taking, I think, some interesting turns within its own Academy of Sciences, for example. And so my question to you is trying to come full circle with this marrying of technical expertise with diplomacy. How would you advise, say, the, the Biden administration to to approach Russia on any sort of um, nuclear type negotiations? Or, or, or what do you do in the absence of of this kind of back and forth between diplomats and or yep. technical expertise? Mm -hmm. So, you know, over the years, we, we've had a lot of technical interchange and also, of course, diplomacy uh you know with uh, uh with the russians and, and for the most part that's really helped us to sort of overcome you know many of the really great difficulties uh, and, and just to, to give you an example i mean I, i've been in russia 57 times okay not since covid and i wouldn't go now you know there's just no way uh when they arrest the wall street you know journal reporter uh uh, this is not a good time to go to Russia. So, so the bad news right now is at the top. Uh, the relations are so bad. And how in the world you know, could we get in bed with a guy uh, who had this unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and continues to kill people uh, there uh, you know, essentially every day? 
So something has to happen on the top to sort of break that. Could during that time, could one still do some, you know, big time nuclear negotiations? I, I think the answer has to be yes. Even though, I mean, we, we can't stand Putin, uh, don't like what he's doing. But for heaven's sakes, we can't allow all the nuclear agreements to just lapse. Uh, and and so I, I would say, yes, we sort of, you know, hold on our nose and get back and, and try to negotiate at least those things. But the things below, you know, the good news is the, in my opinion, in addition to this, uh, the Hinge Point books, actually a few years ago, I published a thousand page book on US-Russia relations and particularly on the scientific collaboration between the Russians and the American uh, scientists. Uh, I was the editor, I didn't write a thousand uh, pages. Uh, and and so uh, we demonstrated there that actually, you know, what really was important uh, during the days of Soviet Union, then going into Russia, is their nuclear weapons people are actually part of of their civil society. I mean, they're the ones I would trust essentially all the way to my grave. And again, having been there fifty seven times, you know, I've been in their homes, I've been every place, uh, and and so. That's our hope, is we're ready to, again, engage. A lot of the diplomats would be ready to engage. But right now, aside from the really big issues, like, like do we extend the, you know, this, uh, the New START Treaty, uh, the rest is pretty difficult because each time you turn a page, you get back to Ukraine, and what they're doing in Ukraine is just outrageous. Thank you for joining us today on Global Insights. If you're looking for more in-depth analysis and want to be part of our vibrant community, head over to network2020.org.